John chapter 1, in verse 29, this occurs now in the ministry of John the Baptist. This is really the essence of that man's ministry when we read in verse 29. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. I suppose you could take that verse and put it on the cover of your Bible, because that really is the best advice, the best exhortation you can receive each time you open your Bible, to behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, And if you jump down to verse 35 now, same chapter, John chapter 1. Again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And now if you would turn to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 5. And we'll take John the Baptist's exhortation to heart as we read now this fifth chapter. Revelation chapter 5, we begin in verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open, to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hast made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne And the beasts and the elders and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain 
to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Amen. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. Always so tempting, you know, when you read the last portion in Revelation 5 and you read of those thousands upon thousands and every creature in heaven and on earth and in the sea under the earth and they're all singing the same tune, singing the same song about the worthiness of the Lamb and it's always tempting to shout that as loud as you can to try to capture the volume, if you can imagine it, that must have just uh, rang in the ears of all that heard it, this glorious song, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Now in order for the people of God today, in our day, to behold the Lamb of God after the exhortation of John the Baptist, it really becomes incumbent upon us to turn to the book of Revelation. I know many people read and study this book, probably for the wrong reasons, trying to figure out what happens when and what stands for what and this nation and that nation and who's the Antichrist, etc., etc., looking for all the evidence you can find to uh, fulfill your prophetic notions. And you miss the point of the book when you approach it that way. This really is a book that calls for us to behold the Lamb of God. This reference to Christ as a lamb as it had been slain is the predominant title that is given to Christ in this book. Have you ever noticed that? I have to acknowledge that the predominance of that designation of Christ as the Lamb had escaped me for many, many years until at last I took note of it. Maybe that's in part, I don't think it was because I was looking to um, find the evidence for my own prophetic notions, but I can't deny that when I turn to this book, I tend to view Christ as the conquering king found throughout this book. The imagery of chapter 6 and verse 2, after all, describes a white horse, and he that sits on this horse has a bow and a crown, and he goes forth conquering and to conquer. And there's another reference to a white horse in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, where we read, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, 
and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. This is the imagery that most often comes to my mind when I turn to the book of Revelation. And it's an encouraging image to contemplate. It's arguably the fulfillment of Psalm 2. The kings of the earth and the rulers taking counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The world has declared war on Christ, which provides occasion for God to laugh, and then he has them in derision, and he vexes them in his sore displeasure. And in the book of Revelation, we have the record of those vexings in the form of sealed judgments, vile or bold judgments, trumpet judgments, all leading to a final judgment, the great white throne judgment. And in the light of this imagery, I have to admit my surprise to discover that Christ is not most often referred to as king. Now, he is certainly called the king. Indeed, he's called the prince of kings in chapter 1 and verse 5. He's referred to as the king of saints. In chapter 15 and verse 3, he's referred to as the Lord of Lords and King of Kings in chapter 17 and verse 14, as well as King of Kings and Lord of Lords with an emphasis in all capital letters in chapter 19 and verse 16. But still, this is not his predominant designation. Ten times he's referred to as Christ or as Jesus Christ. Twice he's referred to as the Son of Man. Once he's referred to as the Son of God. But no fewer than 26 times he's referred to as the Lamb. Four of those occurrences take place in this fifth chapter of Revelation which we've just read from. Look at these references again. Verse 6, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as it had been slain. Jump down to verse 8, And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb. Every one of them uh, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And could I pause there for a moment just to point out what I do every time I reference this verse, that what you find taking place in the book of Revelation is taking place in answer to the prayers of God's people. Okay, these golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. So you want to find out what the book of Revelation means, find me a Christian who is devoted to prayer and ask him before you ask some so-called prophetic expert what the things mean in this book. Show me a man who keeps close communion with God in prayer. 
because what is unfolding in this book, as I say, is in answer to these prayers. Okay, but verse 8, another designation of the Lamb. Jump down to verse 12, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And in verse 13, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. So you have these designations in the fifth chapter. This is a sampling, like I say, some 26 times throughout the book, you find that designation given to Christ. He is the Lamb, the predominant designation given to Christ. And so in the course of this fifth chapter in Revelation, you could say that we discover the Lamb slain, the Lamb exalted, the Lamb worshipped, all of which leads to the Lamb reigning. Chapter 6. Only the Lamb is qualified to open the seals of the book in chapter 5. And so we find him doing just that in chapter 6, indicating to us that he's exercising the power and the authority that's been given to him by his Father. He has won the right to advance his own cause. That is the very thing that is being celebrated in verse 9. And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. Why? Why is he worthy? How is it that this privilege falls out to him? For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. He has won the right to advance his own cause. And this, as I say, is the very thing that's being celebrated in heaven in this fifth chapter. And you see why it is that he's worthy to open the book? It might be argued that he's worthy on account of his intrinsic attributes. He is, after all, holy. He's righteous. He's infinite and eternal and unchangeable. He's all-wise and he's all-powerful. But the thing that is especially noted and celebrated before the throne of God is the truth that he's worthy because of his accomplishment of redemption by his shed blood. And the image of Christ as the Lamb keeps that truth ever before us. This puts the book of Revelation in a different light than how it's usually considered. The very fact that Christ is often referred to as the Lamb indicates to us that this book draws from the theme of redemption. This book, to be rightly understood, must be seen in the light of redemption. There is a blessing, you know, and if you're familiar with the book, then you're aware of this. There is a blessing promised to the one who reads this book and hears and keeps the things written in this book. 
And I believe the blessing promised is the blessing of assurance. The assurance that comes through beholding the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, the blessing of being drawn into heavenly worship with blood-bought saints, and the blessing that comes to the assurance that the cause of redemption is being advanced and that it will triumph in the end. We're given a foretaste of that heavenly worship around this table of the Lord this morning. This table, you could say, points us to a coming feast, what's referred to as the marriage supper of the Lamb in chapter 19 and verse 9. And on that occasion, we'll be perfected to the full enjoying of God to all eternity. But we don't have to wait for that occasion to enjoy Christ. He's ordained this supper, the Lord's Supper, in order that we might enjoy him now, indeed, in order that he might be, to borrow from our call to worship this morning, our exceeding joy. So I'd like to focus on the theme this morning of beholding the Lamb of God. We could apply John the Baptist's command uh, to our day by saying, read the book of Revelation. And in proper preparation for our time around the Lord's table, I would invite you this morning to behold the Lamb of God as he's revealed in the book of Revelation. Behold the Lamb of God. Think with me first of all, if you would, on the Lamb in His character. The Lamb in His character. Look with me in chapter 5 again, verses 12 and 13. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Worthy is the Lamb, the heavenly choir sings. And the term worthy refers to his worth or to what he deserves. He deserves power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. He's worthy of all those things. These things are his due. By his very nature, of course, we can say that Christ deserves these things. After all, he is the Son of God. And because of his nature as the Son of God, the things that are here ascribed to him are already his. He possesses all these attributes of deity. And so we might ask, how can we or any heavenly host, for that matter, give power to one that is already all-powerful? How can we ascribe riches to one who already owns everything? The cattle on a thousand hills. 
<coughs> can we give him wisdom? Can we give him strength? Can we give him honor and glory? And the answer is, of course, that we cannot. Who do we think we are? He is intrinsically glorious. He is altogether glorious. We can add nothing to one that is altogether already glorious and wise and powerful. We can, however, and we should, ascribe these things to him declaratively in our worship. That's how we give him these things. Declaratively in our worship. This is how he receives these things from us when we, in our worship, confess that he possesses these things by his very nature. In Psalm 148, the psalmist calls upon all creation to praise the Lord. The angels, the sun and moon, the stars of light, the heavens of heavens, fire and hail, snow and vapor, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruitful trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creeping things and flying fowl, kings of the earth and all people, princes and all judges of the earth, young men and maidens, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord. And why? For his name alone is excellent. His glory is above the earth and the heaven. Verse 13 from Psalm 148. The Lord is worthy of our praise by virtue of who he is. But remember what I said about the book of Revelation. The Lord Jesus Christ is seen as the Lamb. And the text tells us, worthy is the Lamb. So we must think upon the Lamb in our worship. We must describe the things that are His due in connection with the redemption that He's accomplished. And in connection with our redemption, we can say that the Lord is worthy to receive power. For He died a powerful death. And He rose with power over the grave. And he visited you and me with power when he revealed himself to our souls. We were spiritually dead. We were destined to be eternally dead. We were on the broad road leading to destruction. And sin had such a powerful grip on our affections that we would have hugged our sins all the way to hell were it not for a more powerful force subduing us, overcoming us, delivering us from sin's guilt and sin's dominion. Where did that power come from? It came from the very thing that we're called upon to remember this morning. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. That's the power that overcame our resistance and won our hearts and caused all things to become new. He's worthy to receive riches. And when we ascribe riches to him, we're simply giving back to him what he's given to us. And who among us that knows and believes in him can say of him 
that he's been miserly to us when it comes to blessing us. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, Ephesians 1.7. He's rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, Ephesians 2 and verse 4. His riches are unsearchable, Ephesians 3 and verse 8. And he grants us according to the riches of his glory, Ephesians 3.16. So when we remember that he's bountifully blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, we do well to ascribe all riches to him. It seems, doesn't it, that in the midst of our busy lives, with the many things that call for our time and effort, along with the trials that we must constantly endure, it becomes so easy to lose sight of the fact that we are bountifully blessed with untold riches. Let the bread and the cup this morning preach to you, therefore, that you are spiritually rich. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, that church with all its problems, he could nevertheless say to them that in everything ye are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 5 to 8. Blameless. Isn't that something to contemplate? Confirmed blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. It takes the riches of righteousness, you know, to be blameless in that day. That blessing's been provided. It takes the payment of a great debt on your part and mine to de be declared blameless in that day. And that price has been paid. Every blessing you've been given and every spiritual blessing you seek is a blessing that's been purchased, purchased by the blood. And so we do well to ascribe riches to Christ the Lamb, for he has made us rich and he has purchased for us great blessings at a very high price. We do well to ascribe wisdom to him. The bread and the cup preach to us the genius of divine wisdom. How could God in his impeccable holiness come up with a plan to rescue guilty sinners from everlasting condemnation. In his wisdom, God sent his Son so that the Son of God would become the Son of Man. We must never forget that. This table is designed to help us never forget that, that the second person of the Trinity, the blessed Son, became a man, born of a virgin, took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, 
and he would accomplish salvation in a way that in God's wisdom, he would display his glory and his might. He would display his grace and his love. He would display his justice and his vengeance. He would show how he could satisfy the demands of the law and still rescue poor, vile, guilty, hell-bound, hell-deserving sinners. It's no wonder that the saints in glory ascribe wisdom to him. We should do the same when we remember him around his table this morning. And so Christ, the Lamb of God, is worthy to receive these things. I should point out that the very designation, the Lamb, speaks to us of his purity and his innocence. The term is taken from the Old Testament Passover lamb. And that lamb had to be without blemish and without spot. The spotlessness of that lamb conveyed the message that Christ, God's lamb, would be holy and harmless and undefiled. So as we partake of these elements this morning, let's do so by confessing Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So we behold the Lamb in his character and we conclude that he's worthy of our worship. We should also behold the Lamb in his accomplishment. That's my second point now. Behold the Lamb in his accomplishment. His accomplishment is presented to us in most dramatic fashion in this chapter of Revelation. He hath prevailed to open the book. We read in verse 5. And that word prevailed, he hath prevailed to open the book. That word prevailed is translated very often by the word overcome. For example, in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21, we read, To him that overcometh, or that prevails, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, prevailed, and am set down with my Father in his throne. It is a word that literally means to conquer, to prevail, to overcome, to conquer. And Christ, the Lamb, has conquered every foe, put to flight every enemy, defeated every attempt to overcome him, and took out anything and everything that would keep you or me from reaching heaven. When it came time for him to die in our place, he prevailed against the very wrath of his father when that wrath was unleashed upon him. You think of it, there was a sense in which Christ being crucified was the greatest crime and travesty of all time. It demonstrates to us, doesn't it, the fury of hell's injustice. That injustice was combined with the strictest demands of God's righteous justice. 
Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. We read in Zechariah 13 and verse 7. There's God's justice unleashed upon his fellow when his son stood condemned in our place. And so you have the fury of hell's injustice combined with the strictest demands of God's justice all let loose upon him when he became sin for us and against all these things he prevailed. His proclamation was, it is finished. And I hope you have some notion of what a glorious proclamation that was. It is finished. That indicates to us that he prevailed, that he overcame, that he conquered. And doesn't that demonstrate for us that there is no one like Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah? No man in heaven or in earth, neither under the earth, could open the book or even look upon it, according to verse 3. No man possessed the power or the purity to advance the cause of redemption. It's no wonder that verse 4 tells us that John wept much because no man was found worthy to open or look upon or read the book. And it's against that dramatic backdrop. It makes the words all the more precious in verses 6 and 7 when we read, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. Why could this lamb, as it had been slain, step forward and take the book? He could take it because he prevailed to open the book. He prevailed by his blood. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, and the reason is given. For thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Verse 9. This verse in Revelation, by the way, verse 9, could be added to that category of verses that prove that Christ's atonement was a definite accomplishment. Here are those that have most definitely been redeemed. The blood has accomplished their redemption. The very notion of Christ prevailing indicates to us a definite and a successful atonement. Not a hypothetical one. The imagery of Christ as a lamb as it had been slain, indicates to us that he prevailed by his blood to take the book and loose its seals. He's identified as the lamb slain in verse 6. He's worshipped as the lamb slain in verse 12, where we read, Worthy is the lamb that was slain. We find one more reference to the lamb slain, which is in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, which refers to him as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. 
this reference to Christ, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, it indicates to us that his atoning death was and is the plan of the ages. Salvation was not an afterthought in the mind of God. It was not, as some dispensationalists have suggested, I don't know how many of them would be foolhardy enough to suggest it still today, but in the earlier days of that system, it had been suggested and put forth that the cross of Christ was plan B that went into effect after the Jews rejected him. Oh no. It was rather God's everlasting purpose of displaying his glory in the salvation of his elect from the very beginning. This was and is the plan of the ages. That becomes very evident, doesn't it, when you think of the lamb slain being enshrined as an image in heaven. Now before we leave this point, I should point out that just as Christ prevailed with his shed blood to advance his cause, so the Christian prevails through the same means, based on the same merit. So we read of the afflicted saints in Revelation 12 and verse 11. It says, And they overcame him, that is the devil, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their own lives unto the death. By remembering the body and blood of Christ this morning, in the way that Christ has ordained that we remember him, we should draw from this ordinance the strength and the confidence that we need to be conquerors for Christ. There's nothing like the reality of sins forgiven and a home in heaven and being reconciled to God by the blood of his Son to motivate us to overcome the sins that easily beset us and to inspire us to advance his cause even at the cost of our own lives if need be. So we behold the Lamb in his character we behold him in his accomplishment. Would you consider finally, we behold the lamb in the midst. The lamb in the midst. In the midst of the throne, we read in verse 6. In the midst of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. And the application is extended in verse 11 to include angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. This scene certainly encourages us to look ahead to that day when the saints are perfected in glory. Then will we lift up our voices in perfect praise, being unhindered by infirmities and sins. We'll sing with all our hearts and we'll be fully engaged in what we're doing. We'll learn in many ways how to worship God truly for the very first time in our lives when we're gathered with 
those ten thousands and ten thousands and thousands of thousands around the throne of God, the Lamb being in the midst. The attraction of the scene will not be the city of pure gold like unto clear glass. The attraction will be the Lamb of God, the Lamb in the midst of his people. Only then will faith give way to sight and we will truly behold the Lamb of God. But not only will we behold him, but we'll enter into joyful communion and intimate fellowship with him. Revelation 19 and verse 9 makes reference to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That will be a feast that will surely celebrate the consummation of redemption. We'll be free at last, not only from sin's guilt and sin's dominion, but we'll be free from the very presence of sin. There will be no such expression, such as we're too familiar with now, the sin which does so easily beset us, Hebrews 12.1. On that occasion, on the marriage supper, there will be no easily besetting sin. That'll all be behind us. The very fact that in the marriage supper of the Lamb, however, teaches us that in glory we will not forget that Christ became a man and shed his blood for our salvation. That's the significance of this emblem, the Lamb slain. It seems that our fellowship with Christ will always have this truth at the forefront that our salvation has come at a very high price, the price of the blood, the blood of God's Lamb. And so you could say that our time around this table this morning truly foreshadows that heavenly worship. And though we don't see him now the way we'll see him then, that in no way nullifies the truth that he is with us now. He does draw near to us around this table. In a spiritual sense, we recognize the lamb in the midst of his people, even now. And we're to remember the same things now that we'll remember in glory. He became one of us. He took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. He was and is the Lamb of God without blemish and without spot. The bread is the emblem of his humanity and his innocence and his righteousness. It reminds us that he is in every way qualified to represent us and he's worthy of our remembrance and our worship. And the cup will remind us that He's the Lamb slain, slain from the foundation of the world. He was slain by the shedding of his blood. And with the hymn writer we sing, What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon this my plea, nothing but the blood of Jesus. It is by his blood 
that the saints are said to have come through great tribulation, having washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, chapter 7, 14. Referring to that marriage of the Lamb, we read in Revelation 19 and verse 7, that the Lamb's wife has made herself ready. I think you could say that that's what we're doing while we occupy in this world below. We're making ourselves ready for that marriage feast that is to come. And the way we prefer, we, we prepare for that time to come is to make much of the blood even now. So most gladly then do we remember the broken body and shed blood of Christ our Redeemer we behold the Lamb in his character, the Lamb in his accomplishment, and the Lamb in the midst of his people. Let's draw near to him today with the assurance that he in turn will draw near to us as we remember him in the way that he's ordained. Oh, may the Lord bless his word to our souls. Let's close then in prayer before we distribute the elements. And let's all pray. O oh Lord, as we bow now in thy presence, we thank thee for this heavenly scene that thou hast shown us in thy word that shows us the focal point of all time, which is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. We ask of thee, O Lord, that thou wilt aid us now by thy Spirit as we endeavor to ascribe all praise and honor and glory and strength and riches to our Savior, who is worthy of these things and so much more. Draw near to us, Lord, and bless these thoughts from thy word to our hearts in our remembrance of Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.